Aloha, everybody. Welcome to podcast episode number 83 of the GeoTrek podcast when we'll be traveling to the beautiful Hawaiian islands. Unfortunately, we travel this time with some somber news. One of the worst catastrophes in recent years that struck the U.S. struck the island of Maui this past August. A deadly catastrophic wildfire, really the deadliest wildfire in modern day U.S. history, struck the western part of Maui, especially near Lahaina. A just really tragic story. Our hearts go out. I know a lot of people have traveled to Hawaii, either visiting or on tourism or vacation. Some people have spent time working or living there among the warm Hawaiian people. A really tragic event. And we wanted to learn more about it here on the GeoTrek podcast. So we're going to be traveling with you. We're going to be learning about these wildfires, what caused them what the impacts were and what we can learn from them moving forward. You know, wildfire is such an interesting hazard, unlike other hazards. You can get a blizzard, for example, just by having cold air and a lot of moisture. All of a sudden you have blizzard conditions. Wildfires are a little bit different. They take time to develop. You need really a accumulation of dry fuels, which take time. Usually you need a drought situation. And then obviously you need a triggering system, often with strong winds to fan the flames. And that's unfortunately what we had in Maui this past summer with a lot of very severe drought and then a very windy condition that really fanned these flames and spread the fire as well. Well, if you spent time in Hawaii, a lot of times people think of Hawaii as paradise because it's beautiful weather year round and the weather's a big part of it. But also when a lot of people get there, they're surprised by the culture. The people are so warm, so friendly, so welcoming. The whole concept of aloha isn't just a greeting or isn't just a word. It's really a way of life that has to do with warm welcoming and a warmthness and a connectivity. And the Hawaiian people are amazing for that. But a lot of people don't realize how resilient the Hawaiian people are as well. And they're forced to be because they live in the most isolated island chain in the world. So they have to be very self-sufficient to deal with hazards and deal with disasters because there's not like an interstate system where we can just send relief from a neighboring state. Really, relief to Hawaii takes a lot of time and a lot of planning and coordination. And they have to be very self-sufficient. Because of that, Hawaiians are very resilient people, and there are lessons that they can teach all of us. Because uh, really, when we get into disaster situations, a lot of us become more isolated than we'd expect. We can learn a lot from Hawaiians that have dealt with these kinds of disasters, be it wildfires, volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis. They've dealt with a lot in that part of the world, and we're going to learn a lot from them on this episode of the podcast. Our special guest today is Kainoa Kajo. He's the Director of Community Development with Global Empowerment Mission Hawaii. He's going to be with us on the broadcast, Global Empowerment Mission, or GEM. They've been on the ground helping people get back on their feet and really helping the recovery process there. We're going to hear about what they're doing there in Maui. And again, a lot of lessons learned from the great work that GEM is doing on the ground. Kainoa, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Hal. Kainoa, you're working, doing such important work there with Global Empowerment Mission in Hawaii. I mean, the scale of the disaster with the wildfires, especially in Maui, is just hard to even comprehend. Could you please help our listeners understand just what happened and, and what the scale of everything that happened out there with the wildfires? Yeah, thank you. It, it is, um, I mean, even for us who've lived there our entire lives, it's, it, it's still kind of hard to settle in. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, mega fires and, and big wildfires or firestorms like this all around. But for, for us in Maui, um, Lahaina has always been a very 
significant place for us, a very culturally significant place. It was once uh, the the kingdom or the the capital of the kingdom of Hawaii. It has been a, a place for you know our chiefs and kings in the monarchy and even pre-monarchy days uh, to live. It's a very culturally significant place in that it was once a wetland that now has been deprived of a lot of water. Uh, and then through, you know, thousands of years of habitation, both by, you know, the indigenous Kanaka Maoli, Native Hawaiians, and then up until today where it's, you know, people see it as a, as sort of a, a tourist destination, uh, but, but very multi-ethnic, excuse me, multicultural. And, you know, just what we think of as Lahaina, if you've ever been to Maui, right? Front Street, uh, you know, walking along there, that whole destination, you know, and then so many just family homes, you know, aunties and uncles and, and the places we all grew up going to just just gone. Kainoa, with the, the deep heritage and history there that goes back centuries, right? Is there any record of anything like this that's happened on Maui or in the Hawaiian Islands before? Well, you know, we've been lucky in that we haven't had huge disasters uh, as much as, say, other, you know, areas in, in America or around the world. We have, you know, we have passed, of course, Hurricane Iniki uh, in, in 91 that hit Kauai was was huge. Uh, Lahaina, about 100 years ago, did actually have a wildfire. But, of course, 100 years ago, it was much less populated of an area. So this is unprecedented. Uh, I mean, there's still 7,000 plus people uh, out of homes. We're talking about, you know, thousands of, of homes and businesses gone. Uh, it's absolutely unprecedented. Kainoa, you mentioned some environmental change, that areas that were wetlands have now dried out. Is a lot of that natural? Is some of that really the result of development and, and human involvement? I mean, could you give us a perspective on that as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Hawaiian Islands are always a, a really unique and diverse ecosystem, but that side, the, the leeward side of Maui uh, and, and Lahaina in particular, used to have and, and still does have perennial streams and rivers that come down. The area of, of what we think of as Lahaina now was a was a wetland with, with lots of sort of marshy area, well regulated by, you know, traditional uh, agriculture. And then during the last 200 years, because of the plantation, uh, what, what we call, you know, the, the plantation era, they diverted the water to be used on the sugarcane and the pineapple plantations, which created massive drought conditions for that side of the island. You add to it just the, the feral, you know, goats and deer and, and cattle uh, throughout the last 100 years. And the, you have the denuding of the upland landscape and the increase of invasive species, which we know is, you know, a, a big factor in wildfires everywhere, that was a big part of this this disaster. Well, it's interesting. We know there's a lot of climate change and climate variability, but it sounds like you're saying there are a lot of human things everywhere from bringing invasive species into the islands to agricultural practices that have really changed the landscape there, making it more susceptible to wildfire. Oh, absolutely. Most people probably don't know, but Hawaii is the endangered species capital of the world. Uh, we, we're also kind of the invasive species capital of the world. If you imagine all the endangered species in all of North America, so from, 
you know, the Everglades up to the Pacific Northwest, including Hawaii, we're two thirds of that list. When you imagine our, our small size, that, that really puts it into perspective. You know, we have been, we have a year round growing season, right? Things can grow, uh, uh, you know, around the calendar, right? We don't have a frost that, that kills things off that we've got to lay things fallow. So that means that the bugs and the pests and the invasive species can outcompete and outgrow with our native species. I know it is some of that as well. The fact that the Hawaiian islands are really the most isolated islands on earth, right? As far as how far you have to go to reach other land, uh, they're, you know, you get to other parts of, say, on the mainland, if the climate starts shifting, species can can move geographically. In Hawaii, that's not really the case, right? I'd imagine some species may move up or down with elevation, but they don't have these broad areas of land that they can move, I would imagine, as well. Yeah, that's that's right. Our, our native species, our endemic and indigenous species, sort of, you know, evolved and adaptively radiated here, very isolated. And so when these, you know, now if you look at, you know, Lahaina, the guinea grass, the pompous grass, the, 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 the invasive cane grasses have sort of spread throughout the leeward and also the other sides of the island, creating just huge fuel loads, right? And so we are t- very susceptible uh, to wildfires. And of course, as we're seeing, you know, you know, throughout the Pacific, of course, sea level rise is impacting us as well, changing ocean, you know, temperatures. This, the sad thing is, is unfortunately, this probably won't be the last you know, disaster that hits us. It's uh, really, we, we've got to talk about how to be more resilient within our communities. Kainoa, what can you share with us about, I want to call them microclimates. I mean, I, I've been to Hawaii three times, more on Kauai, uh, Kauai and Oahu. Mm-hmm. What amazed me is just you can literally move several miles and all of a sudden you can transition from that windward side towards the leeward side and go from rainforest to desert in in what, a 15-minute drive or less? Uh, could you speak about that? I mean, uh, people that haven't visited may not have any concept of these microclimates and how just a slight change geographically can change your entire en- environment out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because of just, I mean, you can imagine, right, winds are whipping across over 2,000 miles of open ocean and they they hit these, you know, islands in the middle of nowhere. And so based on which direction, you know, the valley is facing elevation, we have, you know, 12 out of the 13 different microclimates in the, you know, in the Copen system. I mean, there's literally everything from subalpine tundra to, you know, true desert and everywhere in between. So we've got temperate rainforest. And, and, uh, and so what you, what you have basically is just, yeah, all of these little different microclimates, depending on the, the, the geography, right, which way it's facing, uh, which makes for, you know, beautiful place to live and makes for, you know, gorgeous things to look at, but definitely contributes to the the uniqueness of our situation. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. It's just amazing geography there and, and how quickly things can change with elevation and with your latitude longitude as well. Kainoa, could you walk us through the August fires? I mean, just sort of walk us through that event. What caused them? How quickly did they spread? Uh, we've heard news reports that they moved incredibly fast. Could you walk us through kind of the, a play-by-play of, of how this event really happened? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, and, and, you know, even yesterday we had a couple wildfires uh, spreading on the island because of high winds. And we, we have a high wind warning right now on the island. On that day, uh, it, the winds in Lahaina were up to 80 miles per hour. They were incredibly fast. 
And so there were a couple isolated fires. And actually at, at the time, there was a fire going on in Kula, which is uh, kind of upcountry on the slopes of Haleakala Mountain, about, you know, 25, 30 miles away from Lahaina, which we thought was at one point was much larger. And so a lot of our Maui Fire Department got diverted towards these other wildfires. Uh, because of the geography, you know, we, we are separated when the municipalities Lahaina from upcountry. So a lot of the firefighters got pushed over there and then the winds just took off. I mean, you see the videos uh, from Lahaina that day and it was, it was the people, you know, friends and family that were out there that I talked to on that day. It was like nothing, you know, they'd ever seen. And these winds would just pick up these embers and fly them for miles and, and spark up, you know, another uh, fire you know, miles away. And once it hit a lot of the, the densely populated area between the invasive grasses, and then it got into, you know, a lot of our homes are, are old over there, right? They're single family, what we call plantation style homes, Canex roofs, asbestos, uh, lead paint, and, and that caught and the wind just, just swept it through the town. And so people could not move fast enough our, our police, our fire, and our community, just like, I mean, people sprung into action just trying to evacuate. But Lahaina also is a, a one-way-in, one-way-out town, kind of, so you can, you can flee north or you can flee south. Uh, but it is really only one main thoroughfare pulling you out. So as soon as that wind started coming down the mountain towards the ocean, uh, and hitting that, that, you know, sort of densely populated area, there was, it was really scary. And a lot of people were forced to jump into the ocean, uh, because that was kind of the only way to go. They couldn't move in either direction. And it just, it just tore through the town and terrifying speed. Yeah, I know a lot of Hawaii, you'll have fairly large population now, and, and obviously a tourism industry with, with very small roads. I mean, even if there's not an evacuation or a disaster, things can get clogged up pretty quickly. I'd imagine with something like this hitting a populated area, like you said, there was a gridlock and really maybe no way to really outrun it, at least by road. It sounds like you're saying by foot, maybe getting in the ocean was the best option for a lot of folks. Yeah, a lot of folks fled into the ocean and, and a lot of folks, you know, there's a lot of amazing heroes and we hear a lot of amazing stories out there. People busting down, you know, barricades and going through fences to, to make, you know, room for, uh, you know, for other people to follow them. People going back into the fire and, and, and rescuing people, pulling other people out. We've, we have a lot of elderly in Lahaina. Um, we have a lot of people that are, you know, non-English speakers and so, you know, there's a lot of miscommunication out there. Once, a, you know, once cars got stuck in the road, it was even hard to maneuver around, around those roadways. Uh, so there, there was a lot of chaos on that day. I know, like you mentioned, the history goes back centuries and many, many generations of people. I'd imagine the community, I mean, from the from what I've seen of Hawaiians working through hard things, a lot of times people will come together very well. They'll work as a community. Um, I, I'd imagine you, you saw a lot of that probably during and after this event, I'd imagine. We did. I, it's, it's one thing about us. I mean, we live on an island. We are used to doing things ourselves, right? We're used to you know, we know that no one's coming to save us. We are here to save ourselves. We've always been that way as an island culture. Uh, we, we come together, you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic. We, we, don't, we don't care really where you come from, but we protect each other. 
We're used to doing things ourselves. You know, everyone is competent and capable on our island. And it was really amazing to see. I mean, the, the community response the day of and the day after the fire, uh, you know, I was speaking to some, some, you know, people from NGOs and, and the government that came in a couple of days later and, and they said they'd never seen a community response like us. You're forced to be so self-sufficient, right? It's it, other states. They can say, Hey, neighboring state, you know, send a fleet of trucks. You can't do that. You're in a very isolated Island chain. It sounds like you're saying the community really did come together in, in a very special way. The community did. And, and, and don't, you know, take what I'm saying to be like, you know, we didn't get help because we saw amazing supporters and friends and family. You know, one thing about Maui is that is that a lot of people love us. Right. And, and we're blessed for that. And immediately we saw people throwing supplies and planes, jumping on planes, you know, to get over here, uh, doing everything they, they could. Uh, it, it was really incredible. Kainoa, I, I've heard not only, obviously, tragic, catastrophic loss of life, which even one loss of life is tragic, but in this case, just a, a very high death count, which is so unfortunate. Uh, but then I heard also another impact afterwards were just thousands of homeless people, just uh, so many people, even if they saved their lives, had no home to come back to or no possessions to come back to. I mean, what did that impact look like there uh, on the communities? Yeah, you're right. You know, I, I think it's still the deadliest wildfire in American history. About a hundred people uh, uh, perished. And I think we still have, you know, about at the time it was 8,000, 8, about 8,500 to 9,000 people were, were, you know, dehoused. Now we've still got about 7,000 people uh, not in homes. You know, some people moved already or were able to find, you know, temporary housing, but 7,000 people are either in, you know, uh, uh, hotels, non-congregate shelters. Like you were saying about, you know, being in Hawaii, we can't just drive to the next city. We can't drive to the next state. So our inventory of housing, already we were in a housing crisis. Uh, something like 15,000 homes needed to be built in the next 10 years in Maui before the fire just with natural population growth. So we've lost over 2000 homes. We're seeing, you know, a lot of those were multi-generational families. So you had grandparents, parents, grandchildren, aunties and uncles, you know, all living together, friends, you know, living together. Uh, all of those, you know, those, you know, one family, one house is lost. That's, you know, 10, 15 people, you know, living in that home. And we don't have the inventory to put those people you know, to find them another home and we can't build them fast enough. Kainoa, so how are people finding shelter after this fire? Well, I mean, sadly, we're, we're not. Well, luckily, we have hotels, right? We are a tourism-based economy right now. We've been so for about the last 50 years. So a lot of our full-service hotels and select-service hotels uh, are still sheltering people. Uh, you know, that that's that was great in the immediate, right? It's wonderful that we had that opportunity. But if you've ever stayed in a hotel, you know, like I'm in a hotel room right now, there is no kitchen inside of here. You can only live that way for so long, right? You can only have somebody bringing you hot food for so long. Uh, so we need to move them into, you know, there's about 13,000 uh, second homes or short-term rentals here on Maui. Of course, you know, besides the hotels, right, there's a lot of people 
that own many condos uh, and, and short-term rentals like Airbnb type, you know, VRBO uh, uh, rentals here on the island, over 13,000. We've got 7,000 people houseless, right? So if we could get just, you know, some of those, that percentage of people with second homes, third homes, or short-term rentals to convert them into long-term rentals and, and offer long-term leases, six-month, one-year, multi-year leases to people, that would really do an incredible amount for our island. It sounds like you're saying there's a lot of housing there as far as tourism infrastructure from hotels and and house rentals, Airbnbs, things like that. If some of these can shift from renting out to tourists to renting out or providing lodging for the long-term residents, it sounds sounds like you're saying that would be a, a huge step forward to help with the housing crisis right now. Well, it, it would be. And, you know, we've got a lot of factors against us, right? I mean, the, the cost of living in Maui is is crazy, right? Real estate prices, land prices are all, you know, the highest, you know, in the in the nation, right? So somebody, you know, turning their, their empty luxury home into a, a, a long-term rental is, is probably not the case, but we've seen a lot of that. We've seen amazing people come out and open up their homes turn them into, you know, long-term leases and, and there's, you know, rent abatement programs and, and opportunities to, to pay back into those people's mortgages. And I hope more people will do so. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's all just a numbers game at this point. Kainoa, are there any grants or nonprofits or government assistance that says, okay, we'll give money to victims from the fire to help them stay in, in some of these tourism rentals, right? So the victims themselves don't have to pay out, but then the people that own those hotels or own those rentals are also bringing in the income that they need to to pay off their their housing. I mean, it, are we seeing some of that or does that take a, a long time to, to spin up? We are seeing some of that. And, and there's, a, there's a number of uh, programs out there you know, with Global Empowerment Mission Hawaii, we were one of the first to work with Airbnb.org uh, that was able to, you know, put people into Airbnbs, uh, which is separate than Airbnb.com. Uh, but but they had an incredible program. There were a lot of other community organizations here on Maui uh, that that are that are doing programs like that. Maui Rapid Response uh, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement that have some form of of program either through private donations through you know, uh, 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 companies like Airbnb or through government funded, you know, uh, money as well. Kainoa, I was on the ground a few months ago in Hurricane Idalia in Florida, and that's how I learned about global, global empowerment mission. I met some of your colleagues there that were serving the victims of that storm, and they told us about the, the amazing work y'all are doing not only in hurricane zones, but geopolitical crisis like Ukraine. And then uh, they mentioned as well the, the Maui fires and, and just y'all are in many different places helping people out. You're the director of community development for global, global empowerment mission in, uh, in Hawaii. Um, great work y'all are doing there. Could you share a little bit about your mission and the work that you do with, uh, um, global empowerment mission? Yeah. Thank you, Helen. I, I think you, you talked to, uh, Emily, uh, maybe. In, yes. Yeah. And I was amazed. I mean, the, the team that was there, I mean, they were helping thousands of people and I was like, okay, I got to learn what these folks are doing and, and where they get their money from and, and how they're out here so quickly on the ground, helping people out. It, it really is incredible. And that's why I, I jumped on the, the GEM team uh, after meeting Michael Capone and learning about sort of the GEM mission. You know, as he said, you know, GEM's mission is to get the most amount of aid to the most amount of the people in the quickest, you know, amount of time. Right. And when you look at, 
you know, deployment speed, when you look at amount of aid that we're able to provide, it, it truly is incredible. And it comes from years of, you know, him, uh, you know, working with other organizations, being going to places like Haiti and Puerto Rico, and of course, all, all of, uh, across Florida and the United States, to learn a different way of offering humanitarian aid that is about smart partnerships, that's it's about not wasting our money and our resources and our time so that it benefits the community. Uh, you know, it's right there in the name, empowerment, right? It's not about dropping in, you know, parachuting in, helping people, exploiting, you know, the, the community, taking from the community and leaving. It's about getting in there and building the community up from the bottom. If you come to, to Jam Hawaii, you'll see that it's all Maui people there, right? If you go to any Jam office in any of the regions that we're in right now, you see it's about empowering the people in that area. We have a, a, a huge operation going on in Ukraine right now. And it's, it's all, you know, Ukrainians over there, uh, you know, empowering their community, building back their neighborhoods, you know, step by step, day by day. It truly is incredible. No, it's amazing. We see around the world, you have local people that have the knowledge of the culture, knowledge of the language. They want to make change. They want to make their their country or their state or their region a better place, but they just need some help, maybe some guidance, some resources. Sounds like that's what Jem's doing is really coming alongside the local population and empowering them to help their neighbors. Yeah, that's right. You know, every community has capacity, right? And it's identifying, you know, where the competent people are, where capacity is, and helping build that up. Like, you know, in Maui, we haven't suffered through a, a massive firestorm like we had in Lahaina uh, before, but other areas have, right? So as something happens in a, in a community that hasn't suffered that, whether it's a fire, a flood, a hurricane, uh, you know, the ability to come in, share the knowledge that has been gained in other areas and help build that community up so that that the next time a disaster happens, we're able to respond quicker, we're able to be more resilient and able to take care of ourselves better. Kainoa, your Hawaii team, is it a full Hawaii team? Is it broken down into teams by island? Like, is there a Maui team? Like, how is that structured for y'all in the state of Hawaii? So right now, our main, you know, operations are in Maui. Uh, prior to me joining, you know, Jem Hawaii, Jem uh, did uh, help out with the uh, eruption on Hawaii Island, on Big Island, as they call it, a few years ago. Uh, but until now, there hasn't been a really strong and stable uh, commitment in Hawaii. But I think what we're going to see is, you know, we're, we're going to be around for a long time, or I should say Jem you know, is going to be around for a long time in Hawaii. I'm born and raised on Maui. Uh, and and I know we've made, you know, a multi-year commitment to, to Maui and, you know, to really seeing not just this immediate, you know, you know, relief efforts and now into recovery, but the long-term rebuild, we're here for it all. Kainoa, what do you think Jem's work looks like in Maui over the next, say, two to three years? Yeah, that's a, that's, the big question we need to be asking, and I'll tell you right now, we have not just the housing, right? Because housing is number one. Over 7,000 people still not in homes. We need to get them into housing. So we're working on both kind of temporary housing uh, and then working on rebuilding, you know, long-term housing. That is that is both new builds 
and going into the community once, you know, the, the area has been cleared and the debris removal process happens, helping people rebuild in their neighborhoods, rebuild entire streets, right? But we also lost, I believe, uh, um, you know, we lost multiple schools in Lahaina. So we have children, you know, hundreds of kids that are learning in backyards that are in tents right now. And Lahaina's hot, right? So we had a problem earlier with our Department of Education with, with you know, no air conditioning in classrooms. And now, you know, they don't even have classrooms, right? So a big part of GEM now is um, we're working on, on rebuilding schools, trying to get kids, you know, back in schools and back in homes. It sounds like you really have a longer term vision there. Like you said, with living in a hotel, it's not sustainable, right? You need a place that's home where you can cook a meal and, and be with your family. It's the same thing when you really think about all of society, right? We need schools. We need places of worship. We need government. We need, uh, of course, housing and, and utilities, all these things. It sounds like, Jem, it's on y'all's radar and, and you're working towards really bringing back all of society to work as it was. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if you've ever been in this situation, you know, if you're in that hotel room, you don't feel secure. You don't feel like you can go back to work. You don't, you don't feel comfortable, you know, you know, doing anything. Right. So once you're able to get into a home, your kids able to go to school, then you feel a sense of security. uh, And you can actually think about what's next in life, right? You can have hope, you can have purpose. So that's what we're trying to do. I know I had a question too. I mean, tourism has become such a big part of the Hawaiian economy. And so we have this wildfire that was tragic, obviously with deaths and with loss of homes of the local residents. And then you have people that owned restaurants or that owned hotels or that had a a, a shop that, you know, worked with, with tourists. How do we find that balance moving forward where we need to build housing for the residents, but then other people in the tourism sector, they may, they may need or want tourists to also come in as well to help support the economy. How in the world is it possible to kind of move forward and do both of those things? Yeah. And that's a great question because, you know, we are taking a loss every day, right? We are, uh, we've have a huge, the, the county has a huge loss in revenue through both property taxes and also a revenue stream from, you know, uh, 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 the transient accommodations tax and people coming over here and just spending money, you know, all over in, in our businesses. So part of what we're doing as well is trying to rebuild um, in coordination with a lot of different partners, uh, trying to rebuild a, a bit of a commercial area. It's not just about the visitors that, that come from, you know, across, you know, over the ocean, right? It's also just about us being able to support our mom and pop shops, our neighborhood eateries. And that's, uh, you know, that, that was a big part of Lahaina, especially as a tourist destination. So, you know, if we can get people out of those full service hotels into long-term housing, it opens up the hotels for visitors to come, whether, whether they're from the next island over, you know, or, or uh, the continental United States, people can go back to work uh, and we can begin to rebuild our community. It sounds like there's a balance there and you really have to have this perspective where you're considering all the different uh, parts of, of society there and that they all need to really come back. Yeah, it's it's definitely not easy. You know, tourism is always a double-edged sword. We get a lot of revenue uh, for our islands because of it. It provides well-paying jobs, but it is a serious strain on our community. 
you know, the average daily visitor count for Maui is about 69,000 visitors. That's about one visitor for every three residents, uh, which is, which is a lot. And so, you know, we need to find a, a good balance there. I think this is obviously this disaster has reopened the conversation uh, and pushed the conversation about what is the healthy balance between, you know, tourism and residents. Uh, and as you can see, you know, I mean, there, like I said, right, there is no inventory, uh, you know, available inventory for homes. And so all of these things are now bubbling up, you know, for us in Maui. Okay, Noah, you mentioned that, you know, this, these wildfires that happened in August were, were um, catastrophic, and then there have been more wildfires since then. A lot of times when people think about Hawaii, they're thinking about volcanoes, uh, maybe the occasional hurricane strike, really historically tsunamis might be probably the biggest natural hazard. Have these recent fires kind of shifted the dialogue about natural disasters to consider fires more? Or, you know, you live in a place with a lot of different hazards that can strike um, isolated areas. Uh, has this really shifted the dialogue about natural hazard uh, like preparation and communication? Or is this something that do you th think like fires were talked about all along as well? I, I mean, unfortunately, they have been right. We have a wildfire plan. We have a, a, a what's called the community action or climate action and resiliency plan that identifies wildfire risk in in all of our towns. It identifies the risk of all those other you know potential disasters of of tsunami, of flood, of hurricane, and unfortunately, we haven't acted upon them. Uh, you know, the, the, the county and, and the other, you know, uh, uh, you know, particular organizations haven't stepped up to do that, whether it's decreasing the fuel load, you know, working on infrastructure, power lines. I mean, we see this all around, right? The data and the studies are there. You know, FEMA mandates updating our wildfire plan in every state, right? Every five years. So it's done. We just don't look at it and act upon the priority action items to protect ourselves. So that's what we got to start doing, right? We don't need another focus group. We don't need another plan. We have the plans. We need to act upon what the plan tells us to do to protect ourselves. It sounds like maybe implementing the plan that's in place. And you mentioned a lot of things already on this podcast, like, for example, invasive grasses that maybe... Uh, maybe would make wildfire worse, things like that. It sounds like the, a lot of these things are understood and they've been identified. Maybe it's a matter of, of implementing the, the plan that was there. Yes, absolutely. Right. I mean, a lot of this is a, is a holistic approach, right? We need to reduce invasive species. We need to replant native species. We need to listen to the indigenous wisdom of, you know, Hawaiian culture, which, which has a way of regulating the ecosystem. We, we have something we call the Ahupua system, right? Which is the flow of water from the uplands to the lowlands, making sure we're not depleting one area to benefit another. All of these things need to be considered. And we see it all around the United States as well, right? As soon as we start tapping into that ancestral indigenous wisdom, we all benefit. For sure. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen a lot in New Mexico and the, the desert Southwest, everything's interconnected. And I, yes. I, 
the time that I spent on Hawaii, I saw there's this amazing uh, native knowledge, right, that goes back generations. And, and a lot of these in, indigenous ways, there's there's generations of wisdom there. If we can tap into that and not forget it, I think it's it's really going to help us moving forward. Yeah, we've we've lost that, right? We've sacrificed that for progress. But in doing so, we've we've, you know, left ourselves at risk. We've left our families at risk and we've left our communities at risk. Kainoa, as we wrap up here, what's really the one of the big take-home messages you would want to share with our audience that that you learned here, maybe maybe a lesson learned that we can apply both to Maui and and beyond moving forward? Well, you know, I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned in this is that we have to take care of ourselves, that we can wait, uh, you know, for the government, for NGOs to come, but they're not your next door neighbor. They're not your family. We will be there for ourselves first. And so the first level of preparedness, of resiliency is, is self-preparedness, is self-resiliency. And so it's, you know, just talking with your family, knowing, you know, what your plan is, you know, how to get out, how to communicate when the cell towers go down uh, and just checking in with each other. You know, we have also a big mental health problem right now. There's a lot of scared people. There's a lot of lonely people out there. We've had multiple suicides uh, because of this disaster. And so, you know, we just, we need to talk more. We need to speak with each other more and take care of our, our families and our communities. I know those are great words of wisdom, obviously very important in Hawaii where you can be very isolated. I think disaster victims around the world sometimes get blindsided, right? They, they live on a road that takes them into town, but in a storm, there are trees down over the road. They are suddenly isolated from emergency responders, right? So sometimes disasters have a way of isolating any of us. And I think we can learn a lot from all of you out in Hawaii and how you're dealing with these disasters that I think these words of wisdom you're sharing with us on the podcast can be really applied anywhere. Yeah, thank you, Hal. I, I hope so. I, I hope that, you know, the lessons we've learned in our disaster are able to be shared so that other people, you know, don't have to suffer it or can can learn you know, more and, and quicker. Kainoa, how can people find Global global Empowerment Mission and just the great work y'all are doing if people want to make a donation or be a partner or just learn about the work you're doing, not only in Hawaii, but around the world? How can they find y'all? Yeah, thank you, Hal. Uh, people can go to our website. It's just globalempowermentmission.org. Uh, very easy website. And you can go there and look on the top Go down by mission and see everywhere that we are, you know, in the world right now. You'll see one for Maui wildfires. Uh, we've got a great many videos and opportunities to donate uh, all across the website. Yeah, so just globalempowermentmission.org. Well, Kanoa, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know many people really um, have a heartfelt hope that Hawaii quickly recovers from this. We're, uh, you know, really admiring the work you're doing with Gem Hawaii there and helping people get back on on their feet and recover after the fire as well. Best wishes to you. We're going to be following your progress. And I hope and I really trust a lot of our listeners are going to check you all out online, give donations or or just partner in some way with the great work that you all are doing with Gem Hawaii. Well, thank you so much, Alan. Thank you for the work that you do with this podcast and for keeping us in your in your minds and thoughts and prayers. I mean, we really we've got a long road to go, and and uh, and your message can help us. Thank you. Thanks, Kanoa. Best wishes moving forward, and uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you so much. Aloha. 
Mahalo Kainoa. That was an amazing, amazing podcast. You shared so many insights with us. I know our listeners are really going to learn a lot that they can apply to their own lives, whether they live in an area that's prone to wildfires or not. The lessons that you taught us in this episode relate to all of us. Really three major things stood out to me on this podcast. For one, Kainoa helped remind me of the complex nature of wildfires. He talked a lot about the environmental setup for them. So you need an accumulation of dry fuels. He talked about how when you have invasive species and invasive grasses, they can actually help spread the wildfires more. And and that's fascinating. We know that they have many generations of native knowledge there in Hawaii of, of what should be endemic or local to the islands. And we see these invasive species that have come in. And, uh, you know, that's interesting how they can actually make wildfires more severe. Keep in mind, a a wildfire is a very complex thing. It's not just that you have a spark of um, a fire when you have a windy day. You you do have those meteorological uh, conditions that can help set them, but you also need to set the stage with a lot of dry fuels and and things like that. Kainoa really helped us to understand the complex nature of this and, and how understanding the environmental conditions can help us understand the risk for fire and maybe some things that we can do to reduce fire risk in the future. The second thing that I thought was really interesting was how Kainoa shared how really hyper self-sufficient Hawaiians have to be to respond to their own disasters and, and to be their own first responders. Again, we've talked about this in the intro and throughout the interview that Hawaiians are so isolated that they don't have a neighboring state where they can just truck relief supplies across an interstate and across a state border and have relief supplies there 12 hours after an event. They're very isolated. And so because of that, they have to be extremely self-sufficient. In hazard geography, we sometimes use the term called elasticity. Picture a rubber band and you, you can pull this rubber band so far and, and you know, will it, will it, basically rebound and, and go back to the way it was. That's elasticity. If if a society is very elastic, you can stretch it very far and it'll just bounce right back to where it was. A society that's less elastic, you can't do that. In a lot of the mainland, lower 48 states, we have just inherent elasticity because we have so many neighboring resources that can be brought into a disaster zone. I mean, imagine if they have a terrible drought in the state of Georgia. You go to the grocery store, you can buy tomatoes. Why? Because they're trucking them in from Virginia and they're trucking them in from Texas. You can truck resources across state lines. When you get out to Hawaii and parts of, say, rural Alaska, it's not very elastic in that way. If you have a local disaster, if you have a a tsunami or an earthquake or a wildfire or, or some tragedy there, uh, you, it, it's very difficult to bring resources in. And so the locals really have to be hyper self-sufficient. And that's something that we all can learn from. Sometimes we operate under the illusion that, we, that, that we're not isolated. You get someone who lives maybe in the mainland US, they're five miles from a town, they're used to driving into town every day, they don't feel like they're very isolated. But then all of a sudden there's a flood and the road washes out and suddenly they don't have a connection with town anymore. They're very isolated or there are trees down over the roads and now vehicles can't get in and out. A lot of times people, even in urban and suburban mainland USA, uh, can feel like they're not isolated, but then a tragedy or, or say a natural disaster hits and they are isolated much more than they realized. The point here, Hawaiians know that they're isolated. That's why they're so well prepared. And that's why they're very resilient people. And this podcast reminded me that we can learn a lot from them. Although they're isolated, uh, they're forced to be very self-sufficient and uh, forced to really think out ahead of these things and to be uh, well-planned and well-prepared. The third thing that I really got from this podcast 
I thought it was really interesting that Kanoa was sharing that in many cases, the plans, the disaster plans, for example, are already in place. They already know what they need to do. They don't necessarily need to do really advanced research to understand where the fire risk is or, or things like that. In some cases, Kainoa was sharing, it's just a matter of really implementing and applying it and putting into action the plans that are already developed. I thought that was really interesting. And, and that's really just a look at human nature, right? I mean, we all see that in our own lives. Sometimes I think about human health. Staying healthy often is not really that complex or that difficult to understand. I know for me, I need consistent sleep. I need to be active and I need to eat healthy. It's those three things. It's a simple enough idea. The hard part can be implementing it, right? So I, I don't necessarily need advanced analysis on that. I know what I have to do to be healthy. Sometimes I'm just not doing it. And really, it comes down to just doing, really following my plan and doing the basic things right. So I thought that was a really good reminder that all of us can apply is really implementing those disaster plans, understanding our disaster plans, and and really just making sure that we're following through on what's already been determined. Y'all, again, Kainoa is with Global Empowerment Mission. I came across them on the ground in Hurricane Adelia in Perry, Florida. They were out there helping so many folks get back on their feet, helping distribute supplies. And y'all, they're in they're in hurricane zones, they're in wildfire zones, they're in geopolitical and um, global conflict hotspots like the Ukraine. They're really out there. And to me, the test of an organization is when I'm out there in a disaster zone, do I come across them? A lot of the big names that you would have expected, I did not see in places like Hurricane Adelia. I did see Global Empowerment Mission. They were out there helping a lot of folks. That's how I got to know them. That's how I got connected with Kainoa. And I know they're out there in Hawaii, not only doing work since a wildfire, but they're planning to be out there for several more years, really helping in this spot with this recovery from this very natural hazard. So uh, great work that they're doing. Again, look them up, consider supporting them, donating to them or being a partner. I know they partner with a lot of organizations to really help the relief. Y'all, thank you so much for taking time to, uh, to come in the podcast and to follow our work. Uh, You've helped to make us the number one podcast for extreme weather and natural disasters. We love traveling the world and bringing you these stories that you're not hearing on the mainstream media from people like Kainoa that are helping us to understand really the story behind the disaster, how it impacted people, and what we can do to really be more resilient to help prepare for disasters like this in the future. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Hal signing off. Thanks for tuning in to the GeoTrek podcast.